Well, I'm excited to dig into the Christmas story today because we're going to talk about surprises. And hopefully as you think of Christmas, no matter how bad your Christmases were or whatever the difficulties were growing up, surely you had some occasions where there were some surprises. There were some things you were anticipating. There were some good years somewhere along the way that you still remember. It's not just kids that like surprises either. We all like surprises. I've got a big surprise right now, tucked away somewhere in the house for my sweet baby love. That's all I can say about that right now. But I'm pretty excited. I've had it for months, months and months and months and months. We don't even usually get each other anything, but every now and then if we think of something, and I thought of something a long time ago. Now, maybe she's probably already found it. There are no surprises with her, but I think it's going to be a surprise. I hope it's going to be a surprise. But there's something even better that I want to show you today from the Bible this morning. I want to show you a surprise that shows up in one of the most unlikely places, a surprise that shows up in a genealogy, in a genealogy of all places. And it's a surprise that puts on display one of the most glorious truths in all the Bible. This surprise puts on display the grace of God. Now, be honest. It's in a genealogy. But if you're in the habit of reading through your Bible, and I hope you are, all of it. That's what I try to do, all of it. If you were honest, wouldn't you admit that lots of times when you get to one of those lists of names, long list of names... Aren't you tempted to just skip that whole thing? You say, I'm not tempted. I do. Okay. Or that. Or at least just read real fast and start skimming through it. I want to show you today why it's not always good to do that. Why you might actually miss some little gems that are tucked down into things like genealogies. And I'm talking about the Christmas genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew Chapter 1, I do hope you have a Bible or at least a device that can get you to the Scriptures so that you can see it. So get there so that you can look at Matthew chapter 1. And actually what I want to do to give this some impact, I want you to find Matthew 1. That shouldn't be that hard. First book in the New Testament. But I want you to find Ruth 4. So I'm going to go use the bathroom and I'll come back and give you 10 minutes to... That won't be as easy to find. It's in the Old Testament and it's only four chapters and you can miss it. But it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And Joshua and Judges are pretty big. Use the index in the front of your Bible if you have to. No shame. But find Matthew 1 and find Ruth 4. Because what I want to do is I want to show you the contrast. I want to show you a typical genealogy. And then I want to show you what's going on in Matthew 1. So that you'll understand there's something different. And it was on purpose. It was on purpose. You got Matthew 1. You got Ruth 4. Let's start with Ruth. I want you to see a typical genealogy or birth record the way it was usually done. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Ruth 4, verse 18. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. And Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. Doesn't that bring tears to your eyes? Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 1, because you're going to see some of the very same names in the very same order, but there's some significant additions, names that have been added that you did not see in the genealogy in Ruth, and there's a reason. So Matthew chapter 1, 
Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read all the way through verse 16. But the surprises, the nuggets of grace are largely packed into verses 3 to 6. So pay special attention to verse 3 to 6. But I'm going to read, but I'm going to read 1 to 16. Ready? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. See some of the same names? Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah, and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiad, Abiad begot Eli. Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliezer. Eliezer begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. Now, in the time that remains, what I want to do is show you three surprises of grace that I think you find tucked into this genealogy. Three surprises of grace that stand out. Here's the first one. Number one, surprise. You ought to be surprised. You ought to be surprised by the diversity of God's grace in those who were chosen. And when I say chosen, I'm not talking about election. I'm not talking about Romans chapter 9 kind of stuff. I'm talking about those that were chosen to be listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. And there are 42 generations listed there. But it's significant who's there and who's not. And it should cause you to think, why? Why? Why did the Holy Spirit include these? What's going on? You see, here's what you need to understand to appreciate this. Whenever the Jews did a genealogy, and they were into it, Whenever the Jews did a genealogy, it was never complete. So if, you try, if you're really into math and you try to check for every generation and, and you want it to add up and make sense, it won't. Because they would skip. They would skip names. They would skip generations. It was never complete. The purpose of a genealogy was never exhaustive. It was always selective. And therefore, you should make note of who does get included. And you should consider asking yourself... Why? Why is that name there? Why are they there? What is God doing? What is God wanting to say? What is being communicated here? What is being put on display? See, Matthew chapter 1 has some specific people on this list that would not normally have been included in a genealogy. Can you guess who it was? Who is it that's in Matthew 1, 3 to 6 particularly, that wouldn't normally be in a genealogy? The women. The women. It's the five women, four of whom are packed into verses 3 to 6, and then Mary's in verse 16. Five women are listed in this genealogy. genealogy. You say, Brad, what's the big deal? 
Well, here's the deal, and it's a Jewish deal. It just is what it is. This is how they operated. Women were not usually listed in genealogies, but the Holy Spirit put five women in the list. And I want you to find them in your Bible, and I want you to circle them, underline them, highlight, do something with it. I want you to find all five, and I want you to mark it, because I think these five names are little gems of grace, little nuggets of grace that stand out on the genealogy and sparkle and twinkle like lights on your tree this season. There's a reason they're there and they're shining, communicating something that we're gonna talk about in this message. The first, verse three, Tamar. Verse three, circle it, Tamar, or underline it, or highlight it. Do something with your cool app that I can't even do with my Bible. Verse five, Rahab. And in verse five, there's a second female name, Rahab and Ruth. And in verse six, her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now that is a long roundabout drawn out way to talk about somebody, is it not? And there's a reason, there's a reason he says it that way. Who are we talking about? Her who'd been the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, Bathsheba. And then verse 16, Mary. So we got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Now listen, I don't want you to think I'm being condescending in any way, but women were not normally included in genealogies. It's just a historical Jewish fact of the matter. It's how they operated. And remember, Matthew was written targeting a Jewish audience. So the reason we got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're called the synoptic gospels because it means they include some of the same stories. Some have stories that no, no one else, but it's four witnesses. Some have the same stories, but there's a slant. There's, a, there's, a, there's an emphasis. There's a, for Matthew, Matthew was writing for a Jewish audience. That's why when you read Matthew, you find lots of genealogies because they were into that. Before you tell them anything about somebody, who, what they did and who they were, they want to know the background. They want, they want a sense of where this person's coming from. They want some history. Jews wanted genealogies, very important. So Matthew's loaded with genealogies, whereas when you go to Mark, Mark's for us. Mark's one of the shortest gospels, and I think it's funny, every time I read it, the word immediately gets used over and over in Mark. Immediately they went out, immediately, that's us. We don't, skip the genealogies, I don't care all that, just tell me what, what's happening next. Matthew was to a Jewish audience, and so all the more these five names would have jumped off the page, would have leaped off the page to the audience who was reading this. They would have said, whoa, 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 what is going on here? What is Matthew doing? These are women that he's including in the genealogy. What's he doing? And so I'm suggesting to you today that once again, the grace of God supersedes cultural norms. The grace of God supersedes cultural norms. And it's evident here by the diversity of those he uses in the building of his kingdom that both men and women, both men and women were important parts of Jesus's mission on this earth from the very beginning. The history of our world, the history of our world is filled with examples of men treating women in terrible and sinful ways. Treating women is less important than men. Places where women are treated like property or second-class citizens. And there's plenty of examples of that, by the way, that's still alive and well today. 
All you have to do, folks, this chafes me so how the media presents. Well, there's Christianity, there's Islam, no big difference. It's all about God. Oh, my word, there couldn't be a bigger difference. Get yourself over to Saudi Arabia, ladies, and check out how that would be. You're not allowed to drive a car. You're not allowed to vote. And yet the media continues to portray Islam as this wonderful, loving, no big difference. Yet big difference. Women are on a totally different class altogether with Islam. Christianity, no. Jesus and Christianity, the world loves to to whip on us because, quote, women don't have every role that a man has. Roles are different according to the Bible and according to Christianity, but worth and value are exactly the same. Created in the image of God, image bearers. That is a radically different message that Christianity has that women, women are created in the image of God, equal with men. They display the glory of God equally with men and that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and that God uses women, saves women, empowers women. You watch, with, you watch Jesus, you track it through the gospels. An- another indication, see here, this is also one of those places, I think, this genealogy that's indicative and that gives credibility to the fact that the Bible is the word of God and not some hoax. If people had wanted to put together a hoax to start a new religion and to fool a bunch of people, you would have left these names out. Just like in the Bible, as you read the gospels, who showed up at the tomb first and discovered it empty and started running and declaring the news? Men or women? Women. And folks, in that day, women could not even testify in court. Their testimony did not count. It's just the way it was in that day. God, by his Holy Spirit, has women show up at the tomb and begin to declare this message. If you'd wanted to pull the wool over someone's eyes and get them to believe something that's not true, you wouldn't have written it that way. It happened that way on purpose. This is the word of God. And God is a God of grace. And God uses women and men equally for his glory. When Jesus Christ came and started a new religion, he exalted the role of women and addressed the plight of women around the world. Christianity is like no other religion. I mean, when the Bible, and this is an aside, so I've got to be careful how long I run down this little rabbit trail. But when the Bible talks to men about laying down your lives and, and, and loving your, and preferring her and honoring her, folks, this was radically different. She's not your property. She's not your slave. She's not your lackey. You love her like Christ loved the church. You laid down your life for her. You esteem her better than yourself, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Are there different roles in the home? Yes. But value and worth, you put her ahead of you. This was radically different. You don't have Christianity teaching us to have women eat at a separate table and have women follow behind and have women this, that, and the other. It exalted the role of women. And honors women created in the image of God. So there's the surprising diversity of God's grace that's put on display in this genealogy. But there's a second surprise that's even bigger. Number two, you should be surprised by the unsavory character of those who were chosen to be in this list. See, it's not just that women are listed in the genealogy. That's a surprise enough. The Jews that would have heard this read for the first time would have said, Ooh, What? But it's not just that it was female names. It's who these women were that would have shocked them that they're included in the genealogy. So you look at the first part of Matthew chapter 1 again. And I want you to think about something. 
obviously, as he writes this genealogy from verse 1 to verse 16, and 42 generations are being accounted, it could have been written, certainly. It could have been written so that the mother would have been named along with the father in every instance. So it could have sounded like this beginning of verse 2. And Abraham begot Isaac by Sarah. And Sarah was born to Jacob by Rebekah and so on. It could have been written that way through 42 generations that are listed, but it's not. And it's not for a very important reason. Because there's something that God wants to put on display in these verses. Something that God wants to stand out. His grace. His grace. And so that's why these These five women are inserted in the genealogy of 42 generations. Now, we know Mary is the virgin mother of our Savior Jesus. So it's not a big surprise that she's in verse 16. But folks, you've got to stop and think for a minute. What about the other four women? If you've grown up in church at all and you know anything, you ought to already be thinking, oh, how in the world? Why Rahab, Tamar, Bathsheba? Ruth, how did these four ladies make the cut? Okay, Mary's amazing at 16 years old saying, yes, Lord, I'm the handmaiden of the, sir, of the Lord. Whatever you say, I'll do. What a trooper. What an amazing example. She knew what she was going to face. She knew she was going to be thought of as an adulteress or a fornicator. She wasn't even officially fully married yet. She was engaged to just. She knew what she was going to face and said, yes, Lord. So there's Mary in verse 16, most appropriately so. But how in the world did Rahab, Tamar, Bathsheba, and Ruth end up being included in this list? Why does God include these other four women? And you think about how how would the average Jewish person who would have heard this read, and think about it, there wasn't a printing press. So these things were read publicly. That's how they heard it. It was read. Someone had a copy and it was read. Think about the first few times this was read. Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy. And a typical average Jewish person in that day hears these names, Rahab, by Rahab, by Tamar, by her who was the wife of Uriah, by Ruth. What would have come into their mind? As Matthew in verse 3 says, and to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. They would have thought, huh? What? Or whatever shock sounds like in the Hebrew language. I don't know. Something very expressive. They would have thought, what? What? In verse 5, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. What? You see, let me help you out here. If you didn't grow up in church or you have forgotten some of your Old Testament, set Mary aside for a moment. These other four women were outcasts. These other four women were outcasts. Two of them were widows, Tamar and Ruth. And though widows were often outcasts, it gets worse than that, far worse than that. Rahab was a prostitute. You say, oh, it's about to get worse. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute, which is worse, being one or pretending to be one. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute in order to have sex with her father-in-law, on the side of the road, oh my. And it's ugly, I don't have time to go into it, but you can read all about it in Genesis chapter 38. And it doesn't usually get you 
on a list of who's who. And you thought you didn't get along with your father-in-law. I mean, tricking him into having sex with you and embarrassing him by stepping forward with his rod and staff and ring and saying, well, I'm pregnant. Uh, Maybe you know whose stuff this is because that's who impregnated me. And it turns out to be him. And he's in the middle of saying, stone her. I can't believe she's pregnant. Awkward. I mean, it just makes the holidays awkward forevermore. Right? That's family. You tricked your father-in-law into having sex with you. You disguised yourself as a prostitute. You've publicly embarrassed him. And she's in the list. Two of them were confirmed liars and three of them were Gentiles. Again, you might say, well, big deal. I'm a Gentile. Well, for the Jews, big deal. We were considered, brace yourself, dogs. I mean, the Jews were convinced it's all about us and everything's going to be us and salvation is for us and the Savior's coming for us. I mean, God kept trying to help them understand otherwise. It's in there. It's in Isaiah and all over the Old Testament that it's for the nations, but they didn't get that. And so the fact that three of them are Gentiles, one's a prostitute, one's a pretend prostitute deceiver, two are liars, three are Gentiles, and it gets worse than that. Not just Gentile, folks. Ruth was a Moabite. If that doesn't ring any bells for you, let me help you out. It means that she came from a country, Moab, that had been cursed by God so severely that no descendant from them was to enter the temple for 10 generations. Yet, Ruth is listed in the genealogy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I hope you're starting to get the picture now that there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of drama tucked down into these little verses in verses 3 to 6. We've got prostitutes, pretend prostitutes, Gentiles, and somebody that's been cursed by God that are all listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ and not just casually referenced to, but done in such a way contrary to what was normal. See, whenever anything happens that's contrary to normal, right? It stands out. It's done in such a way that it's highlighted and put on display and pushed out from the text because they're, in, they're inserted to the exclusion of any other women names. You say, Brad, what's your point? Well, it's obvious to me, I think, that these women are included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ because God wants us to be swallowed up in the wideness of his grace and mercy. Swallowed up in the wideness of his grace and mercy. He wants us to be overwhelmed by his grace and mercy, stunned by how different he is and how inclusive he is. I know the world just yammers on continually about us being so exclusive and so intolerant and so blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you something. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. The way to God is exclusive. And the invitation to get on that path and come to God is not exclusive. It is offered widely to every tribe and tongue and language and nation. So the world keeps trying to define tolerance as make sure you say anybody can come anyway. Folks, there's one way. But we have a God who reaches out and draws all kinds of 
people from every background, every language, every economic level, every educational level, every broken, shattered, sinful, shameful past. God is a God of grace and mercy. What a God. Don't let the world intimidate you and cause you to be quiet about this message, folks. This is not a hostile, hurtful, hateful message. And we may end up going to jail for it soon, but don't lose sight of the fact it is the most hopeful, gracious, merciful, loving, life-changing message in the world. Tell it, tell it, tell it. Yes, it's Jesus. But Jesus came and in his very genealogy, God shows that this Savior is for all people especially those who are broken, especially those who might think, yeah, but not me. Yeah, but there's no way. God says, yes, you, you. When you lift your eyes from reading these verses in Matthew chapter one, God wants you to be gripped with the fact that there's nobody sitting here today that's beyond God's grace. Listen to me, no matter what you've done, where you've been, who you are, or what's been done to you. See, that's that final category that today some people have really hung up. It wasn't even my choice, but here's what's happened to me. And so therefore, I'm, I'm damaged goods. I'm, don't hear me discounting your pain. Don't hear me discounting your hurt. Don't hear me making light of it. Do hear me saying you're not in a special category where you can't be right at the main table, seated at his banquet table of grace with full privileges, with all God's love, with all his blessing and a robe of righteousness and adopted in his son or daughter. Yes, you. You, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, or what has been done to you, God's grace supersedes all of that. That's the God we serve. That's the God of the universe. That's the God who took on flesh and stooped and stepped into this. That's why he went out of his way, folks, as you read through the Gospels. That's why it was on purpose in John chapter 4 that he said, I must needs go through where? Samaria, the Jews went around. They went way out of their way and added miles to their journey to get to Jerusalem without passing through Samaria. And we've got a real God who takes on flesh and says, not only am I not going around, I must needs go through Samaria. And he talks to a woman at the well that's on her fifth husband. And did he look down on her? Did he shame her? He offered her living water. That's our God and Savior. Someone ought to say amen. amen. That's the God we serve. That's the God. No one is so far gone that God can't save you. And here's the other mistake people make. Yeah, but I'm one of those where I'd just be thrilled if he would draw me in and save me, but there's no way he could use me. I won't be one of those people that can be used. I'm kind of in a different status. He can save you and use you for his glory. That's his intent. That's his desire. That's his design. That's the God of the universe. So put away your selective, petty, small-minded God. Notions of that. Because right here in Matthew 1, verses 1 to 16, you see the wideness of God's mercy and grace. He chose to include women 
that if this had been a book that people had made up to fool people, they would have taken their big fat eraser and erased them out or put them in fine print or put them as a footnote or an addendum and said, we can't make much of that. I hope people won't see that. We don't want people to know about that. God says, you know what? Boom, front and center. Look at that. Look at that. Here's how I operate. Here's the kind of God I am. This is the message that we have. This is the kind of salvation that I offer. A salvation for Rahab's and Tamar's and Bathsheba's and Ruth's. And you can add male names in there. The wideness of God's grace and mercy. Some of the best news you could ever hear. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know what you're thinking. But you really do need to fight hard, my friend, to not allow your feelings to dictate what is true to you. Don't hear me saying pretend you don't have feelings. Feelings are wonderful, but God never designed our feelings to be the authority in our life. And for you to submit to feelings and saying, beyond what I feel, I cannot do. If you live a life of beyond what I feel I cannot do, you will live a really rocky, up and down, messed up life. Say, feelings, I feel you, I hear you, but I'm not following you. Because God's word over here says this, says this, says this. I'm going to align my life with God's word, not what I feel. And oh, folks... Every now and then, I think I've had three days like this, when my feelings are in line with what is true, it is glorious. But all those other days when my feelings are like children that cannot be controlled or contained, I live by the truth of God's word. And that'll change your life. That'll change your joy. That'll change your peace. That'll change your security. That'll change how you view other people. That'll change how you respond to other people. That'll change how you respond to the hurts It changes everything. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're feeling. But I want you to know our God is a God of Tamar and a God of Rahab's and a God of Ruth's and a God of Bathsheba's. And he's in the business of shining his glory through broken vessels that this world would toss out onto the trash heap as useless. But God doesn't. He delights in picking up the broken shards and remaking them into trophies of grace for the display of his glory. Rahab, the prostitute, is a trophy of grace. Tamar, the deceiver and pretend prostitute, is a trophy of grace. Bathsheba, the adulteress, is a trophy of grace. And Ruth, with the cursed family background. Some of you think, oh, my family is so messed up. I'm beyond messed up. Good news. Ruth, with a cursed family heritage and background, is a trophy of grace. And those of you sitting here today that know Jesus Christ, make sure you understand, you are a trophy of grace. It's not that you found God Oh, you never would have found him. It's not that you got baptized. It's not that you prayed a little prayer and asked Jesus into your heart. It's not that you walked an aisle. It's not that you signed a card. It's not that you, it's not any of that. God found you, arrested you, took hold of you, 
took out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, opened blind eyes, unstopped deaf ears so that the gospel that you'd probably heard many, many times was sweet for the first time. So that this good message and someone that was trying to paint Christ in front of you for the first time was beautiful. You're like, oh, I want that. How did that happen? He worked in you first. And then you responded. You ought to thank God every day for salvation. You're a trophy of grace. The wideness of God's grace and mercy is put on display in this Christmas story and in this genealogy. That's why Ephesians chapter one talks the way it does about our salvation when it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And he's gonna tell us why. How did it happen? Because you got perfect attendance in Sunday school? Because you host a small group? Because you, because you, because you. According to the good pleasure of his will. It was his will. It was his good pleasure. You didn't deserve it. He didn't think, well, you look like a good candidate for Christianity. You're already pretty decent. And no, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. When you get a hold of that, my friend, you can rest. Some of you don't have rest. You have religion, but you don't have rest. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you what? Some of you were handed a system a merit system, a spiritual ladder to climb, a spiritual hammer and a saw and a tape measure to try to work your way to heaven and you're exhausted and you're joyless and you have little peace and almost no security. Listen to me. By which he's made us accepted in the beloved. He does all the work. You receive it by faith. But here's what it does entail and require. You gotta humble yourself and set aside your stinking wretched, way too much alive and tenacious pride and be willing to say, save me a sinner. I cannot keep the 10 commandments. I cannot be good enough. I could never earn this or merit this. Have mercy on me, the sinner, and save me. And he will give you rest. He will make you accepted in the beloved. Listen, some of you have been rejected. You've been rejected by so many people in your life, people that, people that were significant, that should have been encouraging you and blessing you. You've been rejected by so many people. Listen to me. The good news that we have here today is that through Jesus Christ, you can be accepted by the God of the universe. And listen to me, when God accepts you, it doesn't matter who rejects you. Your biggest problem is solved. You can go through it with a smile. Hurt? Yes. Does it still hurt? Yes. Does the past still hurt? Yes. Do new things still hurt? Oh yeah. Things yet to come that are going to be hurtful? Yes. But with tears and a smile on your face, you go through it differently. Whoever rejects you, I have been accepted 
in the beloved. I'm not trying to keep myself saved every day. I'm not hoping to do good enough, pray long enough prayers, read my Bible enough, memorize enough verses, do enough good things. Hallelujah. God accepts me on the basis of his son, Jesus Christ. On my very best day, when I'm doing all I think I should do as a Christian, I still desperately need the merits of Jesus Christ to be accepted by God. And on my very worst day, the same Savior stands and God the Father holds the same opinion of his son every day. And what he thinks of you and me is based on what he thinks of Christ. And that doesn't change. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Some of you here today, you got religion, but you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You do not have rest. Come to Christ. Christ. John chapter one says, the law came through Moses. Ten commandments and do this, do that. But grace and truth came through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Grace. That's why Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. All other religions, including Islam, I might add, is spelled do, do. Roll your mat out, face it towards Mecca five times a day. Do, 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 do. You're trying to do enough to earn the merit from God and favor from God. Christianity is what God has done for us. Radically different. Radically different. God used four outcast women as a part of his plan in bringing salvation to all people. He's not ashamed. He's got it prominently, awkwardly, obtrusively, and gloriously pushed out from the text. For all to see today that this is the kind of God we serve. This is the kind of grace he has. Rahab, Tamar, Bathsheba, and Ruth. God sent his son for people like that. And make sure you don't think, oh good, I hope those kind of people appreciate that. Put yourself in the group for people like us. Grace, grace, grace. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter four, verses five to seven says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bond servants for Jesus Christ. For it is the God, for it is the God who showed light out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where's it found? In the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. What's he talking about? The treasure, folks, is the gospel and the very person of Jesus Christ. The living, risen, perfect, glorious, beautiful Jesus lives in every believer. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Bodies that are dying, Lives that are crooked and less than perfect and still stumbling and blundering along. Why did he do it that way? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So that no one would mistake, oh, you're this way because of you. You're just such a great guy. You're just such a great woman. You're just such a, no, you're a mess. But I sense a treasure in you. I sense a hope in you. I sense a resting in you. I sense a security in you. Tell me about this. That's why 1 Peter 3.15 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. 
But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Christ is in you. The gospel is in you. But the power is of God. That's a great three-word description of Christianity right there in 2 Corinthians 4. Not of us. It's not about us. It's not about us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 teaches the same thing. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 and look at it with me. I want you to know this is not a theme. This is not just a, something that's just found occasionally in scriptures. This is a theme all through the scriptures. That God comes for the weak. God comes for the broken. God comes for those without power. God comes from those that are not the sharpest on top of their game. The ones that the world would pick are not who God picks. Look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And he's gonna tell us why. Why does he operate this way? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's the same thing that's being taught in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. You would have expected the birth record of our Savior, the perfect God-man, one who had never sinned, the most glorious being in the universe that, that for the first time would have a, a skin suit on and walk the earth. You would expect the birth record of this person to be a who's who of some of the most holy, godly, wonderful, righteous people that ever lived. And you would have expected the skeletons to be kept in the closet. But that's not what you find. By Rahab, by Tamar, by her who had been the wife of Uriah, who committed adultery, and then her adulterous lover had her husband murdered. She's in the list. Bathsheba and Ruth. That's the wideness of God's grace and mercy. But that leads me to a final surprise in the closing minutes of what I want to show you. And it is the most personal and precious. Number three. You should be surprised and delighted to know that God extends this same grace today to you and me. This is not how God operated back then, but it's a different deal now. Or we've run out on that. He's done with that. Same God, same grace, same message of hope. You should be surprised yet delighted to know that this God extends this same grace to you. And me, that's what the Christmas story is all about. I hope you will not be able to go this year through another season of ho, 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 ho without coming face to face with what the Christmas story is really all about. This is it. This is it. 
God's grace took on flesh and came to the earth and arrived in a manger but went to the cross. That's why 1 Corinthians 9, 15 says, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Never mind jewelry and watches and coffee makers and toys and a Mercedes in the driver with a bow on it. Kid stuff, pish posh. I'm talking to you today about the most indescribable gift. And it doesn't rust like that Mercedes. It doesn't break like that latest, greatest toy. You get this and it can never be taken from you. The gift of eternal life. That's why I said in John 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You get this gift and you got it for life because he's a bulldog of grace. You're in the grip of grace. I don't know what the year ahead looks like for your job and neither do you. I don't know what the year ahead looks like for your health and neither do you. I don't know what the year ahead looks like for your finances or your most important relationships. But when you get this, you can go to bed knowing what the year ahead looks like regarding your most important problem. That you are held in the hand of a mighty, gracious savior that came for Rahab's, Tamar's, Ruth's and Bathsheba's and you can never lose it. That's the Christmas message. Have you received the greatest gift of all? I'm not asking if you're religious and you're into church. You're here, even on a day of bad weather. Yay. But you can park it in a room like this Sunday after Sunday and still go to hell. Do you know Jesus, do you know God through his son, Jesus Christ? Does he live in you? You may be a young person that's grown up in this church, but you're not gonna ride into heaven on the coattails of your parents. And don't sit here and think, I've got time. Right now, I wanna go ahead and be a Rahab and a Tamar and a Bathsheba for a while. And then I'll come back and taste some of that grace. Listen to me, you don't know that you have another day. Today, if you hear my voice, today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. Come to Christ and taste this Christmas grace. 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 Great definition of grace, acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. We're celebrating God's riches that are given to us at Christ's expense, free to you. But it came at a great cost. And see, here's what is required. You have to be willing to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy and come with empty hands. Too many people show up with a spiritual saw and hammer and tape measure and want it to be a joint effort between them and God and they just don't see themselves as bad as they truly are. Lay it all down. You cannot work your way to heaven. He's not here to tweak you and give you a boost. He does it all because you can't do anything. Come with empty hands and say, save me, Lord Jesus, the sinner. Do you have this indescribable gift?